All right, buddy, welcome to the show. Today we're going to be talking to Ture, uh, the one-named wonder, mm-hmm. sort of like Madonna. Yes. You know, very powerful, powerful essence. Yes, indeed. He has a new, uh, really interesting podcast series. It's called Being Black, the 80s with Ture, where he takes some of the most political music from the 80s and talks about like the social and cultural forces that were going on at that time. So he talks about deindustrialization He talks about uh, the war on drugs and mass incarceration and what was going on with crack. He talks about, you know, life for working class black people in particular. So um, I was really excited to listen to this series because Tori and I, we have known each other for a long time. We're very close. And it is a really close meld of kind of his strengths, his passions, the things that he brings to the table because he has this unique um, crossover of being both a political commentary and also common... uh, commentator that's the word i'm looking for and also a cultural critic so really cool series and i will bring up my controversial music opinions to his face not a fan of jay-z not a fan of beyonce i'll take rihanna over beyonce any day of the week jay-z has an annoying sounding voice chris brown is the greatest r&b singer of all time i'll bring all this up tori's gonna have a lot of feelings about yeah. that i mean look i'm a kid of, i was born in 1988 i'm a child of the 90s so, to me, you're a little out of my depth once you go back to, like, you know, 1980s rap. Right. Bring up, like, KRS-One or Run DMC, and I'm like... Yeah. But there's also a, a piece of this that um, there's a capitalist critique as well, because at that point, uh, rap and hip-hop hadn't gone completely mainstream. Yeah, it was more underground. And it was more mm-hmm. independent. Yeah. So there were more radical songs and lyrics that were permitted versus what comes out today. True. Which is all, you know, mass market. Yeah. And he talks about, you know, at that point, rap really was predominantly for the black community. Now it's for a very mainstream audience, and that also changes, like, who you're marketing yourself to. Yeah. The beats back then were trash, though. I'll just say it. I mean, seriously, you're going to hold a candle to, like, Still Dre? That beat? I mean, you play that today. You could, A baby would be, like, bobbing their head, you know? Like, that's, it's just crazy. Crazy good beat. All right, anyway, so we'll get into that with Ture. It should be fun. Yeah, definitely. Before we do that, we got a bunch of stuff to dive into. It's been so a big week. Oh, yeah. So, um, Trump was indicted. We talked about that like the that. other day. Yeah. On Secular Talk, also on Breaking Points, you guys yeah. talked about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, second indictment now. Seven charges he's being brought up on. And um, over the classified documents case in particular, that's like, you know, the genesis and the heart of of this. They're going after him for obstruction, all sorts of stuff. But vis-a-vis that issue. Uh, Well, Ron DeSantis, as you predicted, by the way. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't... Instacup. It didn't take a genius to see what he was going to do. He woke up in the morning and chugged a giant juice, a giant glass of Instacup juice. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, he comes out and says... The weaponization of federal law enforcement represents a mortal threat to a free society. We have for years witnessed an uneven application of the law depending upon political affiliation. I'm going to come back to that point in a second. Why so zealous in pursuing Trump yet so passive about Hillary or Hunter? The DeSantis administration will bring accountability to the DOJ, excise political bias, and end weaponization once and for all. So, first of all, the the idea of a two-tier justice system and it's based on political affiliation... To the extent we have a two-tier justice system, which we do, there's a class angle to it, and there's also a racial angle to it. The idea that it's like, you guys go way too hard on Republicans and way too soft on Democrats. I just don't, I fundamentally do not buy that. I don't buy that for a second. The reason why Trump, if Trump handed over all the documents when he was told you got to hand over all the documents, 
we'd be done because he has the privilege of being a former president and they're going to bend over backwards to not go after him. Yeah. But since he went the extra mile to spit in their eye, snub his nose up at the process, hide the documents, do all sorts of sketchy stuff, that's why he is where he is. He has nobody to blame but Donald Trump. The other thing I would say is if you were going to make an argument about a political bias, it would definitely go in the other direction. And you can compare the law enforcement treatment of left-wing protesters versus the law enforcement treatment of right-wing protesters on January 6th. Like, if it was Antifa that was storming into the Capitol, do you think they would have been, like, led around on a sightseeing tour the way that some of the January 6th people were and barricades opened for them, et cetera, et cetera? Exactly. So he comes out and says this, um, thinking, which by the, the the political logic of it, like him and his staffers, are idiots. Here you have an opportunity, at the very least, to go out there and be like, look, I'm the no-drama candidate. If you want to win, if you're serious about winning, I'm the guy. I don't have two indictments. I'm not going to end up in prison, so maybe I'm the guy. I don't think you could do that politically, though. I mean, that's the problem. Is But that's the so, weak argument. That's but, not, he's not even going in in that scenario. But remember, last time when... The uh, I believe it was when Mar-a-Lago was raided. DeSantis tried to just not say anything, and it became a huge political problem for him instantly. And he was super late to saying anything, and then ultimately, because there was so much pressure on him, he ends up cutting himself. Like, I don't think there's a lane to win in the Republican base by going against Donald Trump on these charges, but then that just demonstrates there is no lane really to win in the Republican primary at all. That might be true. But if there's any hope, you have to provide a counter-argument and you have to weather the initial outcry. Remember, when Trump first went after DeSantis, there was an outcry against Trump. Mm-hmm. Everybody was like, whoa, and the polls shifted in the other direction. But then Trump kept doing it and eventually was like, okay, this is what he does. And then he went back up in the polls. So for DeSantis, it's like you have to be a man. You know what I'm saying? Like you have to make some argument here. It's, this is just total, I'm going to bend my knee and kiss your ring. Yeah. And I'm, that's so cucky. You're never going to win like that. I, I hear you. I just think that ship has sailed. Like, I'm saying you could be right. Yeah. But if you are not right, the path to victory is not cucky McCuckington. The path to victory is like, look, I'm the serious candidate. I'm here to win. I'm the no drama guy. I wasn't indicted twice. I'm not going to end up in prison. You guys want to vote for a guy who's going to end up in prison where you're going to lose the general election? Have at it. But if you don't want to, I'm the serious one. Come to me. Yeah. I just don't see that working. So anyway, he cucks himself. Yeah. Then the Trump people still are like, Screw you. Yeah, they think they're still like, you didn't go far enough. What did you gain? He's such a clown. So Richard Grinnell, I guess a Trump sycophant, he comes out and says, Ron DeSantis says nothing should be done about the DOJ's partisanship unless he is president. That is not what he said. That's what you read into it. Mm -hmm. He doesn't call for an end to the Trump witch hunts. There's no call to action now. This is a strategic blunder from a Tallahassee team used to dealing with an overwhelming majority of Republicans. You just want Ron DeSantis to, like, suck on his scrotum. That's what you're telling me. That's what this means. Yeah, well, you had, um, you know, he didn't go as far as, like, Vivek Ramaswamy, who was like, I'll, I would pardon Trump instantly. And, you know, no, it's not enough to just, like, theoretically take his side in the, you know, on the politics of this and on the, like, weaponization of the government view of all of this. It's like you have to go all the way in or it's not enough for them. That's just... That's amazing. We've never seen anything like this. It really is something incredible where, like, twice indicted former president, clear scumbag, clear criminal, and all of the establishment voices in the party are just worshipping at his feet. Yeah. And and this is when we, you and I know behind the scenes, 
behind closed doors, they're like, yeah, I hope that this works and we get this guy out of the way. Yeah, they all would love for him to be gone, but nobody will actually do anything. And the ones who will say anything have no shot in hell. Like Asa Hutchinson. Yeah. Was he said Trump should not? He should he step said down he should from step running. Down. Yeah. Chris Christie has said has basically you know demurred and said we'll wait and see what the facts are. But he's gone aggressively after Trump on a variety of things, and I certainly could see him going after him on this. Remains to be seen what, you know, Mike Pence is going to say. Pence was actually surprisingly pretty forceful against Trump in his um, launch speech, which I wasn't, frankly, expecting. But Tim Scott immediately comes down and is like... Well, he wants to be VP, I think. Totally on Trump's side. He wants to be VP. Vivek Ramaswamy, like I said. I think Nikki Haley also hasn't said anything, but she'll take the DeSantis route as well and say similar things, backing him up. And um, it's just, look... Republicans, to the extent that they ever had an opportunity to get rid themselves of Trump, right you know, I think, 6, I right think after right after January 6th yeah. was probably the best and chance. And right after the midterms, I think. And you had Mitch McConnell sort of float like, maybe I will try to, you know, whip Republicans in the Senate to actually convict him for these charges. You could put, sort of put out there this trial balloon. And after they let it go for like a week or two <laughs> and didn't didn't really go out and do what it takes and try to marshal the army and have some sort of unified force... It just slid right back into, well, this was actually Antifa, or if it was our people, like, they're patriots, you know, and this then they were sightseeing, right? And before you knew it, the, the little moment when there was maybe an opening is gone. And so, I, I don't know, I just feel like that ship has, has really sailed quite a while ago. So if you were going to come out now and be like, no, I actually think this was a crime, and I actually think this is a problem... There's no way the base is going to follow you. They overwhelmingly yeah. think these are witch hunts, that the deep state is out to get him, that it's all a plot just to keep him from being president again, that he should be president now, and that it was stolen from him. I mean, that's what they think. And to the extent there were ever opportunities to disabuse people of this of that notion, they never actually seize on them and take them. So DeSantis and all the rest of them are just hoping that something happens that is unforeseen, that knocks him off course, but they all have to know in their heart of hearts, like they don't actually individually have the ability to knock him out. A, a point where we may disagree is that I actually think there's a chance that a deal is cut where it's like you stop running for president and all this goes away. I'm very skeptical of that. And I mean, for one thing, like that is actually what the Trump team team would argue the DOJ is doing is that this whole thing is about trying to keep him out of the White House again and it's all actually political so if there was to be some sort of deal like that it would have to be floated by the Trump side I don't think the DOJ could float something like that and I'm just I don't know I'm just sort of skeptical that you would mix a criminal process and a political process in that overt uh, fashion now what Ryan floated I wonder what you think about this. When I was talking to Ryan Grimm for um, our Breaking Points coverage, he was like, Biden, what he thinks Biden should do is allow the process to play out. Mm -hmm. If Trump's convicted, let him serve like a week in prison and then pardon him. He felt like that's like, you know, then you, there's some level of accountability, but you, you know, don't go through like, the full like political rending of the country. And I think that's whatever. dumb because then Trump will get out, continue to run for president, and maybe win. Maybe I think the only way. Well, but that could be the deal. There's like a, that's where the deal could come in. Is like I'll pardon you if you step aside. Oh, I see. Oh, I see what you're saying. I see what yeah. you're saying. Uh, look, I think there's a 99 percent chance. Or okay, let me calm down a little bit. 
95% chance Trump wins the nomination. I think the most likely way he loses is if he goes to prison. That's another one where you disagree with me, where you think he could win from a prison cell. Yeah, That's I do. That's amazing. I also think um, probably the Republican primary process will be so advanced at the point that there would be any yeah, that's a fair that, point. That's a fair point. Yeah. I hope that's not true, but I think that's a fair point. And by the way, just so everybody understands, really fascinating fact, 99.6% conviction rate when the feds go after you. 99.6. Yeah. So this is to your point last night when I was like, do you think they have a slam dunk case even on the original claims? Yeah. So I know the obstruction stuff is like slam dunk, but you're like, I think even on the original they do because they wouldn't be here if that wasn't the case. All the evidence points in that direction. 99.6% conviction rate. Well, we are. We have now... We already knew about this tape that theoretically existed that CNN had reported on that was, like, him bragging about some, like, Iran war plans. Right. Basically, like, how we would attack Iran. It was worse than That he was bragging about. And now they have the transcript. And he directly says, like, I could have declassified them when I was president, but I didn't. I and mean, then, just like... And then he also says, look, come look at them. Right. And, and... Which is worse than I thought the tapes were going to be. And he says, like, this is very secret. This is secret stuff. You know, so it's like every... <laughs> and the reason the declassification part is important for people who haven't followed all of the ins and outs of this is one of the arguments that they were planning to use in their defense was that... He was commander-in-chief. Any documents that he took, he had already declassified, so there's no crime here. Now, that may have already been not a great defense because the particular section they're using doesn't technically require it being classified, etc. You know, he didn't go through the formal process that may be necessary, etc., etc. But they were thinking that might be a defense. But if you have him on tape being like, this document right here, which is typed top secret, is not declassified. I could have declassified it, but I didn't. That's, you know, that's probably going to be a challenge for him in terms of his defense would be my, my uninformed, non-lawyer view of the situation. Grab the popcorn. Yeah. All right. So now I wanted to talk a little bit about the Supreme Court uh, decision, which is very, very surprising to a lot of people. So there's an NPR. They say Supreme Court unexpectedly upholds provision prohibiting racial gerrymandering. The U.S. Supreme Court on Thursday stepped back from the brink of totally gutting the landmark 1965 Voting Rights Act by a 5-4 to four vote. A coalition of conservative and liberal justices reaffirmed the court's 1986 precedent, interpreting how legislative districts must be drawn under the landmark Voting Rights Act as amended in 1982. The court said that in Alabama, a state where there are seven congressional seats and one in, f- and one in four voters is black, the Republican-dominated state legislature had denied African-American voters a reasonable chance to elect a second representative of their choice. The decision could reverberate across other states with reconsideration of how congressional lines are drawn in areas with significant black population. So, remember, there was a decision from a few years back right, um, that basically gutted the Voting Rights Act. And I remember one of the lines from one of the justices who was on the majority side was like, is it the contention of the lawyers that the South is more racist than the North? And they said it almost like, well, obviously they're not. Like, that was the implication. Yeah. And I remember reading that thinking, of course they are. Yeah, I mean, we've got a a long, ugly history that's a reason why there's, you know, additional scrutiny applied to some of these states as well. Well, now it looks like, almost like some of them were like, okay, yeah, we did the test, and they are. You know what I mean? Yeah. It looks like they were like, oh, okay, we gave you the chance, and you didn't do the right thing. 
I mean, I read it in a slightly more political way, which is that this is Chief Justice Roberts reportedly is very uh, aware of the political standing of the court. That it's yeah, and this court has took a huge hit. Reputational hit. After overturning Roe versus Wade. Um, you know, if you just look at like trust in institutions, already trust of the Supreme Court, in my opinion, justifiably so, was already quite low. And after Dobbs, it plummets even further. Oh, yeah. So I sort of see this He's trying to as maintain the credibility of the court. Reestablish the credibility of like, see, it's not just all partisan. Like, here we are calling balls and strikes and doing something that you liberals want as well. I mean, and it's not just liberals, like the Voting Rights Act and not discriminating on a racial basis is broadly popular with the American public. So that's more what I read into it. I, I read all of their decisions as just sort political. of like nakedly political. They are. They're absolutely political. Yeah. Uh, but I think some of them are genuine ideologues. Yeah. So le- let me just point out for everybody, to your point, Chief Justice John Roberts was on the majority side of this opinion. So right. he went more with the liberals than he did with the conservatives. Yeah. And Brett Kavanaugh did I, that. I feel like Kavanaugh has joined with liberals on a couple of other decisions, although well, I, I can't remember any other. I can't pull them up at the but, top of my mind, but I feel like he may have taken one or two other surprising decisions. I will say, though, remember during the abortion case, when it leaked early yeah. that they're going to slap down Roe versus Wade, there was also reporting that John Roberts, behind the scenes, was trying desperately to argue with other conservative justices, basically saying, look, we don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't need to totally get rid of Roe versus Wade. We could... Uh, Update it in a sense. There was that case. I think it was a Casey. The case that was um, they changed the standard from the trimester standard to yeah. the viability standard. Basically, what Roberts was arguing was, no, keep the right to an abortion, but just tighten the standard a little bit more. So make it so it's still a right, but it's a right within the first, say, 10 weeks or whatever, or 12 weeks, yeah. as opposed to 20 weeks, which is roughly where it was with the fetal viability standard. So he was saying he understood the political implications, to your point, back then with Dobbs. He was like, if we totally slap down Roe versus Wade, we're really skating on thin ice here. And so to your point, that could have led to him now to be like, nope, we're not going to go through this again. Yeah. The, you're going to have a court with an approval rating of like 8% in due time. Yeah, and then you could really, you know, actually face, okay, are we having court packing? Are we, you know, God forbid, subject to a code of ethics like every other federal court in the country? If it wasn't Joe Biden, yeah, these people would be afraid, right? Abraham Lincoln bucked the Supreme Court. FDR bucked the Supreme Court. A Democratic president who's worth anything is going to be like, Oh, you don't like what I did here? How about you stop me with your army? Yeah. Oh, that's right. You don't have an army. I do. And so we're going to go ahead and do this. There are times throughout history where they've ignored the court. The court has gotten wrong a number of times. Plessy versus Ferguson, for Christ's sake. Yeah. Right? So it's like when they're wrong, it's not, oh, they're the supreme law of the land. That's the end of the conversation. No. It's even questionable whether or not you have the right to judicial review. Why do you get to be the ones who determine what is and isn't constitutional? The elected body of representatives who the American people picked should probably be the ones who get the final say, because at least they're representing the people. Yeah, well, they gave themselves that power through their own, through Marbury versus Madison. Yes, and at a certain point, it becomes judicial tyranny, where they're brazenly disregarding the plain-faced reading of the Constitution for their own political ends. Yeah, I mean, we clearly have, like, judicial supremacy, which is not the way that this was intended. We're supposed to have three co-equal branches. But, so yeah, that's that's the vein that I read this in, is them trying to claw back some bit of uh, credibility, because... Yeah, is Joe Biden going to move against them? Very unlikely, right? This man is an institutionalist through and through. Yep. Wouldn't do the 14th Amendment for the dead. Whatever. There's a million examples. But Joe Biden ain't going to be president forever. That's you know, right. I yeah. mean, he, he, you know, either he loses re-election, then you have a Republican, in which case you're safe for a while. But then if it's Trump, 
Um, he can only be in office for four years and then you've got the gates wide open. And if you really have a revolt against the court on the liberal side, that could easily become a litmus test issue in a Democratic primary. I could see that without a lot of doubt, especially if you just completely obliterated something like the Voting Rights Act on top of having already completely obliterated um, Roe versus Wade. So he's keenly aware that they are skating on dangerous political things. Yeah, and they got it right. Wonderful. Should have been eight zero. Yeah. Should have been eight zero. Wait, nine. Yeah. Nine. Sorry, I can't count. That's okay, babe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now, um, this I find very interesting. Curious what your thoughts are on it. So Gavin Newsom yesterday comes out and releases this ad, and it's basically him proposing a twenty eighth amendment to the United States Constitution, and it's on the issue of gun reform. Mm-hmm. So he releases this whole ad over this. He says the 28th will enshrine four widely supported gun safety freedoms while leaving the Second Amendment, Second Amendment intact. Number one, raising the minimum age to purchase a gun to 21. He makes the comparison to alcohol. Says, look, if you got to wait till then to drink, you could wait till then to buy a gun. Yeah. By the way, that is a reform which would save a lot of lives according to the data. A lot yes. of the a lot of the uh, gun killings happen with young men under the yeah. age of 21. Mm-hmm. They do the killing. Universal background checks. Number two, no loopholes. A reasonable waiting period for gun purchases, he says, number three, and banning the civilian purchase of assault weapons, number four. Okay, so, okay, uh, there's a few things. First of all, I find it a little weird to enshrine the specifics in a constitutional amendment in that way. So, big picture, I do think at this point, given the way the Supreme Court has ruled, you either need a totally different Supreme Court that's going to rule, you know, interpret the Second Amendment in a very different way if you're going to have real, um, you know, any sort of reasonable gun reform, or you need some kind of a um, constitutional amendment. What I would be more interested in in favor of is clarifying that there is, you know, when that language of like a well-regulated militia, like the well-regulated part is important and enables states or the federal government to enact reasonable restrictions on gun ownership versus laying out these individual specific specific pieces, which I find kind of, I mean, that seems to me like that should be up to, um, you know, the voters at the state or the federal level to determine what those reasonable restrictions look like. I do actually think with regard to guns, some level of like localism does make make sense to account for different uses of, of guns and different cultures and all of those sorts of things. And also, let's say that research comes out, you know, a few years from now, that's like, oh, actually, the thing we need to do is different than these very specific four things that have been laid out in Gavin Newsom's amendment. And then you're kind of like SOL because you didn't write those into the Constitution when you had the chance. That's the part that seems to me a little bit strange. So my take's a little different. Um, First of all, I just want to point out that three of the four things he points out here are popular everywhere. The first three are poll well over 50% everywhere in the country. The only one where some places it's underwater is the banning of assault weapons. Yeah, and even that is, from a national perspective, is majority support and pretty strong. But state to state, it would definitely vary. Yeah, and certainly local area to local area. Oh, yeah. The more rural, rural the area, the more they'll be like, screw you, we want to keep our own. So I don't, yeah. I don't have as much of a problem with it as you do. Um, and even the substance of this, the laying out the specifics doesn't bother me that much either. So I'm not against this, but the thing that I keep coming back to in my own mind is if you're going to propose another constitutional amendment, you either have to go money out of politics, clean elections yeah. to end yep. the corruption, yep, um, or you have to go right to health care, yep. which would sort of guarantee in a certain way 
but some form of a universal healthcare system. I would hope a single payer system, but some form of a universal healthcare system, yeah. right? Um, or, a, you know, an amendment that, and this is a personal favorite of mine, would basically lay out in plain language every time you go vote for president, the American people get to vote directly on like three or four different specific political issues. Yeah. Like a certain like kind of direct democracy. Microvel ideas. Yes. Yeah. So if I was going to, if I had the choice of like one more amendment, I would pick one of those. If I had the choice of three more amendments, I would pick the three I just laid out yeah. before I get to this. So, so this would be like maybe in the top 10 for you. Maybe top 15. Mm-hmm. Like it's I, like, I like the policy changes. I think it's a good idea. I wouldn't go about it this way necessarily. I'm not against it. But now we come to the more important part of the conversation, in my opinion, which is, why are you doing this? What's he doing here? Right. And we all know what he's doing. Yeah. He's setting up a presidential yes. run. 2028 is his default. But if something happens to Joe Biden, okay. his ass ends up in the hospital, this motherfucker's going to jump in the race in three so seconds. The minute that it's, like, politically acceptable for him, this man he's is in running there. for president. So that's really what this is about. Yeah. And the other thing is, like, look. I don't think this is a cheap right-wing point, talking point, even though I think many of the people on the right will say this, but it's like, when people think of California, what do they think of? They think of, like, rising crime, for example, homelessness, mm. right? And it's like, it's just weird that he picks an issue that's not adjacent to the problems that are in California. Well, You would think he would I mean, pick an issue that's guns like... Guns are certainly adjacent to crime. To crime, sure. That's fair. That's fair. But, like, you know, universal right to housing or something. Yeah, but that would be too based in Gavin Newsom. Although he will occasionally do things that are genuinely good, sectoral bargaining, um, electric vehicles. Uh, Nash, uh, the, public insulin. Yeah, the man is pure ambition. Absolutely. Like the, yeah. To the extent he ever does anything that is remotely based, it just like happens to coincide with being the politically savvy thing Correct, to do. Correct, yeah. With this, uh, to your point about, first of all, I mean, it, I think it's important to have political imagination. So I hate when people shut down conversations with just like, oh, this isn't going to happen. So why are we even talking about it? Yeah, I hate that too. That's really, I mean, I just think it's cheap and we should, we should allow ourselves to have the political imagination to, you know, create solutions that may seem far-fetched at this point, but in an ideal world you can push towards or you can at least like push in that direction. So I don't want to just dismiss it as like, y'all, we're not getting a constitutional amendment. So what are we really talking about here? Even though that is the case. But um, I just saw some polling about how... Republican positions on guns, like just extreme, like no universe, like no universal background checks, no changes, no restrictions, like just wild, wild west are wildly unpopular in general, but especially with young voters, millennials and Zoomers, even with millennial and Zoomer um, Republicans, they're at odds with the Republican Party on this particular issue. And so, yeah, he sees a political opening here of something that, you know, this threatens, like, the gun lobby, but he's not getting money from them anyway. So it doesn't threaten any powerful political interest that his personal political career is dependent on. He thinks it's a political winner. He wants to position himself as a national figure who can run for president whenever, you know, Biden is gone, whatever that means, and um, thinks this is the way to do it. So it's not like it's... It's not like it's really a serious proposal, I guess I would say. Yeah, he mixes in some based social issues takes with, like, horrendous corporate Democrat status quo, 
corporatism. Yeah, I mean, they killed universal health care in right. California, yeah. even though voters overwhelmingly They had, like, a super it. majority super of Democrats. Ma- exactly. Yeah. So it's only Democrats to blame, and all the reporting indicated it was Newsom behind the scenes who was pulling the levers to make sure that never even got a vote. Stinky's um, knocking the thing. Yeah, <laughs> the dog has Stinky. arrived. So anyway, all right, well, that's a good time to go ahead and bring in our guest, Torre. As I said before, it's a new podcast series out called Being Black, the 80s with Torre. Let's get to it. Torre, great to see you. Welcome. Nice to see you guys. How you doing? Doing good. Doing good. good. Since you were all dressed up and looking your best. <laughs> well, I don't know if you you run in slightly different uh, online circles than we do, but I don't know if you're aware. It became a whole controversy who got invited to our wedding. <laughs> so um, you're sort of adding yourself that you were there right now, which may you know bring you in for for criticism among people that you won't even notice <laughs> are criticizing you. <laughs> I mean, you know, look. It, it, you know, if it's a bad thing to be at Crystal's wedding, then I'm a terrible person because <laughs> I would never miss that for the world. It was a beautiful day. It was a beautiful ceremony. It's a beautiful day. I don't know what anybody is complaining about. I don't care. It was a, it was a great group of people. You guys looked amazing. Your daughter still can't find the aisle, and we're still loving that. <laughs> that was the, that was a cute. That moment. was that was adorable. We haven't actually told that story. So Ida, who's six, um, and is our youngest, she was the flower girl, and she you had to sort of like walk across the grass before you got to where the chairs were set up, and so she's walking out, and first she tries to go to like the left of where everyone's yeah sitting. the side of the aisle to the left of our aisle <laughs> yes, and then everyone's like no no no, and they point her the other way, so then she yeah, no the other way the other way she detours, but then she misses the the middle and aisle and goes. Going- <laughs> and then apparently also instead of doing the like delicate sprinkling of the flower she it's was throwing it's very she MLB pitcher through it right <laughs> yeah. in people's faces <laughs> and not like every couple seconds so like I'm holding them I'm holding them throw them at you throw them at you <laughs> if it was in a movie it would be like that is the perfect cutest thing like you can't figure out where to go like and everyone's like oh my god She's so yeah. She definitely, she stole the show. Yeah. She stole well, the show. Well, I was, I obviously couldn't see, I could see her missing the aisle part, but then once she went down the aisle, I heard this big crowd reaction. I was like, I don't even know what she did now, but it must have been adorable. So. Oh, I was laughing. Anyway. It was that, but I mean, perhaps more to the point of you guys, when the officiant asked Lowell, your son, do you take Kyle? And he was like so enthusiastic, like yes. I'm like, mm-hmm. this is like the ultimate like blended family moment of like the son like loves the stepfather, like oh my god, like yes, like uh, and ever if you, I mean, like I I was crying inside of like <laughs> so beautiful, and I know already how much he loves you, but like. You, you know, it wasn't planned. You didn't tell, yeah. and he, he's so effusive, and you can't make. He's ten, right? Yeah, he just turned ten. You can't make a ten-year-old do anything, and he's like, "I love this man, and I take him to be my dad." And it was, it was so beautiful. It was so beautiful. I, was, I wasn't crying inside; I was crying outside, yeah, was, <laughs> very, very visibly the whole time. That was really sweet. From yeah, him. but I will say the hardest one to crack, the one that I was like, I, I knew. Uh, kind of roughly the reaction I'd get from Ida and Lowell. Yeah. But it was actually the older one. Ella, Ella yeah. That when she said yes, that 
that was touching. Because yeah. you never know, because she's old enough where she could be like, fuck this dude. Like, you're not my dad, bitch. Get away from me. But she was she was very loving. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, and Tori has known these kids since they yeah, were itty-bitty. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yep. you've known Lowell literally since he was born and, you know, yeah. very close with him. And anyway, we were glad that you were there. And yeah. um, to make the transition, I'm glad to get to talk to you today about your new project, which first, you know, I set up for people a little bit, but just share with people the the genesis of the idea, how you came to it, and what the sort of creative process was for developing the series. I've been thinking about this concept for years and trying to figure out how to pull it together. And the griot was so gracious in giving me like all the room and like, what do you want to do? I want to do a podcast about blah, blah, blah. And they were like, great, go do it. And like, no notes, like make it happen. And they really creatively let me do like whatever I wanted to do. And what I, what I believe is that great music speaks to the time that it comes from. And especially like great black music is inherently political. And you don't need to be doing a, an overtly political song or an overtly protest song. But just like almost every black song is inherently political in some way. And I wanted to explore that. And how could we talk about the big issues that are inside of some of the big songs? And like, you know, like I saw like Tracy Chapman's song, Fast Car, is not a protest song, but it is, right? She's talking about poverty and the difficulty of living in poverty and the dream of escaping poverty. And Black poverty rises in the 80s. Well, the black middle class also rises in the 80s and expands. In the, but, you know, it gave me this opportunity to, okay, let's talk about the expansion of poverty, but also the imperative of self-esteem because the core moment of the song is she's like, you know, we could escape and I could feel like, uh, or, or dreaming of escaping, I could feel like I am someone, I could be someone, right? That's like the zenith moment of the song. And that's what Jesse Jackson was talking about in his presidential campaigns in the 80s. I am somebody. He was really presenting himself as a moral leader more than even a policy leader. Um, you know, so like that because so many people responded to the desire for self-esteem, mm. you know. And of course, the song basically premieres to the world at a global birthday concert for Nelson Mandela, which happens to have 600 million people watching because the world is Afrocentric at that point. And people are thinking America's problems, Africa's problems are America's problems. And we're not free until they're free. So 600 million people are watching when she goes out and performs Fast Car. And she had been out for months. Nobody cared. And suddenly everybody cared. And she became a global superstar off of one performance. Because that song is so incendiary and it's so beautiful and so amazing. But the thing I didn't realize until I fully dug into her history is she would never have been there without affirmative action. That she is one of those kids who grew up in poverty in Cleveland, single mother, single parent. And somebody was like, you know, you could go to one of these schools in New England. And she didn't even know what that was. Her mother didn't even know that whole circuit existed of these private boarding schools that are kind of a fast track to the Ivy League. And she gets in and gets a scholarship to the Wooster School and that complete in Connecticut and that completely transforms her life. So the story of Tracy Chapman and Fast Car 
allows me to dive into all these important issues for black people in the 80s in terms of the rise of poverty, uh, the rise of Afrocentrism, the value of affirmative action. And so it allows me to tell stories. And we try to do that through NWA talking about being a drug dealer, um, you know, Diana Ross talking sort of about being gay. She didn't, that's a whole other story because she did not realize she was making a gay icon. So, Accidentally uh, an making a gay anthem. Gay anthem, <laughs> which she's doing, I'm coming out. Uh, the producer did not tell her that was what they were talking about. He made her think they were talking about something else. Um, she found out later the hard way. <laughs> and uh, But that's a different story that we can get into. But um, just finding ways to talk about political issues in the world through important uh, songs that are enduring. So why do you think, because this is something I've been thinking about knowing we had this interview, why do you think, or, or do you even agree with this premise that I feel like today, and even through my whole life, I was born in 1988, so I'm more of a child of the 90s than I am of the 80s, but it yeah, certainly hold on, feels uh, hold, like... Hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> what? Yeah. You were born in 1988? That's right. I was graduating from high school. Oh, my God. Okay. And you know what, Tere? I also feel old right now, so you got to feel really old. Because I wake up stiff in the morning. Like, I'm 35. It feels like I'm 80. But anyway, so... Continuing. The music that I was, I was sort of raised with and the music that I, you know, love, and I think about the message from the, that kind of music and... So I'm a big R&B fan is probably my number one genre that I love. And that's, you know, mostly singing about love. But if you look at, you know, the rap that I listened to growing up, whether it's Jay-Z or Fabulous, or I was a big fan of Southern rap. I love like Cash Money Millionaires and Big Timers. And that's all almost like rampant materialism, capitalism, debauchery type stuff. So I guess my question is why when I think of political music in today's day and age, I think of that like goofball Forgiato Blow, who's the the Trump rapper oh, who did God. like, like our kids are tar you know targets targeting our kids this stupid <laughs> terrible rap song. And then when I think of the music I like, it's mostly sort of non political or apolitical. The substantive kind is about love. Then you have the non substantive kind, which is you know about whatever money, women, uh, debauchery, hedonism, etc. What happened to music where there was seemingly like a golden era in the 1980s, which spoke to a more real, deep, substantive human experience versus now it seems very, very just like consumer driven. The focus is more on the beat sounding good, not necessarily the substance of the lyrics. What happened or, or do, you, do you disagree with my premise? I think actually no. it still is substantive. No, it's a great question. I mean, part of what happened is that in the 80s, hip hop was relatively underground. Um, it was controlled by smaller labels that were not connected to uh, larger labels. So Def Jam was its own thing. Uh, Raucous, Loud, Tommy Boy was a huge player. These, these were standalone companies. So Russell or Monica or Andre Harrell at Uptown or Puffy at Bad Boy they were empowered to make their own decisions. So they didn't have somebody bigger than them at the parent company saying, we can't do such and such. As you move into the 90s, the late, smaller hip hop gets bigger. The smaller labels are getting bought up by larger conglomerates. 
in the 2000s, you see even more of a consolidation of like a few companies own all the record labels. Many of those companies that own the record labels are in many other businesses, don't really care about the creative industry, want to see um, a profit on the quarterly balance sheet. So what happened before when it was like, hey, LL Cool J is not, you know, ready to release this album. He needs another, Public Enemy needs another three months to figure, make sure that six months to figure this album out. Okay, go ahead. Like, come back when you're ready. Not when, you know, uh, I mean, the German companies happen to own a lot. Uh, there was a big French company, but there were a lot of German companies that own. And people would talk about, like, you know, we have to make the quarterly. You can't be late because if you're late, then our quarterly numbers are going to get fucked up, right? And they don't understand that. So some of that attention to detail, some of that attention to creativity was lost. And obviously, when you have a bigger corporation over you, some of the more aggressive political things can't be said because mm-hmm. the label is telling you can't say that. Um, when Ice T was doing Cop Killer, right? His label is owned by Time Warner, which is also lobbying politicians to say, can we put down fiber optic cable in Montana and Alaska, whatever it may be. And so when you have C. Dolores Tucker complain, you know, holding congressional hearings, you know, calling out different people are like, what? I, I can't deal with this. I can't deal with I'm like, I, the executives are like, I don't need the stress. Tell Ice T to shut up. We're trying to make a billion dollars over here in Alaska. So, you know, whereas in the 80s, you didn't have that because hip hop was, it was, it was smaller. Like if the market cap in hip hop, let's say, was a million dollars in the 80s, it was a hundred million dollars in the 90s, it was a billion dollars in the double O's, major corporations are like, we're not messing this up so that you can say blah, blah, blah. So it got, it definitely, the, the, the less politicization, mm. I think also, you saw the other big thing is that in the 80s, the prime consumer of hip hop was the urban black male. Right. And the urban black woman as well. But I think overwhelmingly was the urban black male who wanted to hear political things. He wanted to hear about, you know, cops is fucked up. Reagan is fucked up, whatever. In the 90s, it shifts to the suburban white teenager. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think I think in the 80s, it was probably more around a 24, 25 year old consumer that was dominant. And the 90s and the double O's, it becomes a 17, 18, 16 year old white suburban consumer who mm-hmm. is dominant. So obviously the sorts of things that are going to be said, the sorts of artists who are going to be cha- prized, all that is going to change. And it and the incentive changes right in the 80s. Public Enemy's doing great. Other groups want to follow in their footsteps. In the 90s and the double O's, you're not seeing that. So we are going... So somebody like Drake, who's is is the North Star as far as how do we become popular today? Mm. It's a pop sound, right? It's not very regional. It's not very political. Uh, you know, anybody can listen to it. It's, you know, Drake isn't even really making you feel guilty as a white person, which, you know, Public Enemy did probably um so you know that's the model 
today. So, I mean, the, the, the ownership and the audience changed that led to a, a, the whole world changing. I think you talk explicitly in one of the episodes about how, you know, a song like Fuck the Police wouldn't happen under the modern day because of some of those constraints. Weren't there lawsuits over stuff like that? I feel like there were a bunch of lawsuits in the 70s or 80s about rap music, right? Well, um, I mean, there was... Al Gore's wife, There was was political issues in the 80s where basically the establishment, the older generation of black boomers were like, what is this wild music that's going to ruin the children? Mm -hmm. Um, Moral panic. Moral panic. But but what Crystal's talking about, what we talk about in one of the episodes, that that Easy e was a drug dealer before he was a rapper. So he was independently wealthy. So when he starts his record label, he's funding it. He doesn't have other people, white people, telling him you can and can't say such and such. So that was part of why NWA was able to have the freedom to say whatever they want and stand out as far as hip-hop rappers will say crazy things. NWA stood out even in that environment because Easy was his own boss. Right. right when you and, and the DOC, who was part of NWA, talks about it like when he went to get his own record deal at a traditional label where there is you know uh, white people above him, and he's like, I did a song in the mold of NWA, and they were like, we can't have that. You got to take that off, right? So um, that you know who's the who's the boss is absolutely a critical part of the conversation. Well, and that story came out of you did two episodes that were on the crack epidemic. And so you sort of tackled it from a bunch of different perspectives. You talk about uh, De La Soul being one of the first representations of not just like the black urban uh, class or working class, but of the black middle class and trying to prove like a credibility, a sort of street credibility by talking about his brother who is uh, struggling with addiction you talk about the sort of glamorization of dealers. You talk about the way that um, drug money, you know, would devastate these communities. And then it also would shape what businesses get funded, who's going to actually make it, who's going to be successful, and even, you know, the type of music that gets promoted. So talk about, you know, that was such a, a, a horror of the time and a real touchstone of how you uh, focused your energy across the podcast series Talk about your your approach there and some of the songs you chose to highlight. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, crack had a massive impact on the black community, on America, but on the black community in particular. Um, So we definitely wanted to give crack a lot of time. I mean, I don't think you can understand the 80s without understanding the impact that crack had, uh, which was about families. It was about physical health and mental health. It was about, you know, the justice system. Um, so De La Soul makes an incredible song, My Brother's a Basshead, which gets us into talking about the impact of crack on families. And, you know, part of what I do in the show is there's a main song that is the focus of the episode, but we also bring in another song as a way of saying, like, you know, when you see these two songs compared to each other, you can kind of understand the similarities and the differences more. And Public Enemy is also a family dealing with a crackhead being in their midst um, in the family in a different way, right? And they talk about 
the crack epidemic in a very serious way as opposed to De La Soul, which is a little bit more family, lighthearted, struggling emotionally, but it's still kind of light to public enemy, you know, saying like, you know, this is a horrible scourge of the community and it needs to stop. However, there is a drug de- a drug addict in your group. <laughs> While you are lecturing the rest of us about doing crack, you are not ministering to Flavor Flav, who is your brother, who is also a crack addict. And I, you know, I asked Hank Shockley, who was their producer, who was part of the group, um, did you know that Flavor Flav was a crack addict? And he goes, yes and no. I'm like, what? <laughs> how can it be yes and no? Like, either he is or he isn't. Like, you, you're you not doing a little crack. Nobody was microdosing on crack. So <laughs> I don't understand how he said yes and no. But it's kind of like we didn't – I took that at really as like we knew, but we didn't want to admit it to ourselves. Well, and his answer, answer was interesting because you offered that up of like, oh, so it's basically like you knew, but you were kind of in denial. And he was like – Let's take it even a step further than that, which is that we knew, but we didn't want that to limit him. We didn't want that to limit us. So they almost like pretended as if that wasn't the case as like, this isn't everyone, everything that you are. And so we're just going to sort of disregard this piece for now and operate as if we were on the other side of this struggle. I mean, there's this persistent view in music maybe people don't hold this anymore but for a long time there was a sense of like the drug helps you and i know a lot of jazz players used heroin because charlie parker used it and like if he'll do if he did it like whatever i could do to be like him and i remember axel rose telling rolling stone that he felt like once he started going to therapy, he wasn't as good a musician because he wasn't as crazy. And I could see in the back of their minds be like, he's wild and he's a crack addict and that they are probably symbiotic. And if we get him off of the crack, he may not be the same. So, <laughs> but I mean, you know, also people understood even then you can't save an addict who doesn't want to be saved. And yeah. Flavor Flav definitely did not want to be saved at that point. Um, but, you know, the, the De La Soul song, Pazanus is just telling his truth. And he came into the studio knowing what he wanted to do. He was very hurt and upset about his brother's situation. And he's just pouring out his real life story in that song. And... You know, the ending is not real in the song. The character goes moves to New York and becomes perhaps an even worse addict. In real life, the brother uh, got help and got clean, as far as we know. Um, but it was a real-life story, and it gave us a way of talking about the difficulty for families when somebody... Cause just because it wasn't just the crack addict who was being hurt. It was everybody who relied on that person in their family was also hurt. So, I mean, this had a massive impact on everybody. Where, where are uh, the people that you cover in the series? Where are these groups now or these individuals? Um, That's a great question. I mean, you know, we, you know, I mean, nobody's career lasts forever. Talib Kweli once said to me, nobody, retires from the music business the audience retires you Mm. and like there's no old wing of the music business there is in the sense that you can become a legacy act where you're basically like a jukebox and like 
Madonna, Janet Jackson, the Rolling Stones can go on tour, do the old songs again, and people will go to those concerts 100%. Sagar just went to a Blink-182 concert that was like the first big like millennial nostalgia tour. Let me tell you, he's whiter than me. He's way whiter than (laughs) I am. You know, but like, they're not going to be able to release a new album. They might right. find a way to do a cover album or to do, um, we remixed our old stuff, um, but they're not going to do a new album. They're a legacy act. They're not a current act. Um, so, I mean, if you were hot in the 80s, you're a legacy act now. I saw Stevie Wonder a couple of years ago when he was doing like, like I'm going to do the whole album from front to back tour, right? Mm-hmm. Which was exciting, but they're doing a 40-year-old album. I wanted to see that, but, um, so, I mean, like, you know, the De La Soul, you know, obviously they just lost a member of the group, um, but they're still out and about trying to, you know, tour, I guess. I mean, I don't know, I don't know when you'll see them tour, but I'm sure they're, they're probably thinking about it if they can, um, you know, you know, pushing their music into different movies and television shows and things like that. Stevie Wonder, you know, he's quite old he i think he still has the ability to tour but you know he's been around for a while um it's sort of interesting watching the life cycle of artists you know because you do feel like or at least i get the sense that some people they can kind of maintain at a high level not just in terms of sales but also in terms of like creativity Mm -hmm. and relevance and then others like you say they just sort of hit a peak decline and then they become a legacy act and i would love to almost hear from them why they think that is, how does that happen, and if they feel like it's possible to recapture that magic. Because to your point, it's almost like when you're speaking to real struggles and real issues, and that's sort of like your creative outlet, and then mix in maybe a little bit of substances here and there, it's almost like a perfect recipe to then get something beautiful, but that's only a flash in the pan. It's only like a brief moment in time. The dominant music consumer is 15 to 25 years old and probably starting to thin out in the in the in the 20s in the 25 24 right and you know you remember when we were that age the groups that you really loved like was part of your identity right mm-hmm. and i am in a tribe of people who like the grateful dead or jay z or parliament funkadelic whoever it is and after your 25 you don't really relate to music like that. You don't go to clubs less and less. You, you, your tribe becomes your family, right? Your wife, husband, kids, whatever. You're identified by like, you know, this is my wife, this is my husband, etc. Rather than I love this group, right? And you have less time to be aware of new artists. Somebody asked me that question many years ago. I remember the guy, we were about 40, me and this guy, and we both loved Anita Baker. And he's like, how come they don't make music for us? And I was like, you love Anita Baker, right? Yeah. You know she dropped a new album three months ago? No. Mm. Well, that's why. Because you are not in the clubs. You don't watch MTV. You don't, uh, you, know, you don't read Rolling Stone. How would they even let you know? Like, they <laughs> try to tell you, that's you bad. like Anita Baker. We have a new Anita Baker album. He's not aware because he's working, taking care of his kids, soccer practice, like doing the things that a 40-year-old man is supposed to do, which generally the, 
you know, now, you know, if you're 15 or 20, you're in the clubs, you know, LCD Sound System has a new album coming out on Wednesday night, whatever the case, like you're the, it's very, very hard to reach people after, you know, so when you, and when you grow up as an artist, like you're older, you're doing the same things. You are also a parent and you are not going to the clubs the same and you're not in touch with the culture. You're not in touch with what, when you're 35, it's hard to talk to a 20 year old if you're not a teacher or related to them. Like (laughs) what, what do we have to talk about? And to think I have to communicate to a million 20 year olds for this song to have any relevance or meaning. Not just one, but a million or two million. It's very, very, very difficult. And I have to do that competing against a 20-year-old mm. who is in the world and knows exactly what 20-year-olds in 2023 are going through. And is uh, hungry and struggling and still on the way up. I mean, that's to me, seems like a part of it, too. If you're that 35-year-old artist who's been successful... And now you've like made it and you're financially comfortable and you're raising your kids and doing that whole thing. There's also like, a, you know, you, you can lose that edge that created the energy and the emotion and the rawness that's in the, the music that you make when you're younger. You can. I mean, you know, you got to be a real genius to keep turning them out in your 40s, in your 50s. And like Paul Simon and Stevie Wonder... Um, you know, and maybe, you know, Bono and you 2 and them. But it's hard. It's hard. John Mayer said something to me once that before you're 40 as an artist, you should spend most, not all, but most of your time in the studio because that's where you might make a hit. But after you're 40, you should spend most of your time touring because you're probably not going to make a hit. So you should be out flogging the hits you already have <laughs> right and the audience wants to, right and the audience wants to come see them so i mean you know it, it's just i i think that i maybe some of them lose some of the hunger that they had when they were rising but i think it's really just like the the challenge of relating to children when you are no longer a child mm. right it's just becomes harder and harder to make relevant statements for them. And also, when you're 20, 15 to 25, you want your own thing. You don't want your parents' thing, right? So not yeah. the artists must change. The music must change because you need something. You may not even want your older brother or sister's thing, right? Although, they- I want to push back on that a little bit because – so a lot of my musical awareness at this point comes from having a 15-year-old daughter. This is like my direct, you know, mainlining of the culture at this point. And I can't tell you how many times, like, whatever new song comes out and it has a beat from the, the 90s or the 2000s. They, they recycle, like recycle what they know works. They'll yeah. take the best beats, tweak it, and then have the new person on top of it. And I understand yeah. why. I mean, it's yeah. the same reason that you were talking about, like, you know, now that this is all mass marketed, there's a totally different model. It seems like the same exact reason. It's like, oh, well, we tested this in the lab. So the capitalists are thinking, like, we know this is going to work because it worked before. So we're just going to take this thing plug it in and, you know, let it rip. So, I mean, do you, do you also feel like there's a dearth of, of creativity 
in the the industry now, or do you not see that? I don't want to. I never wanted to dismiss the entire generation and say they back in my day was better. Mm-hmm. I, I I do think that <clears throat> hip hop has in general has had better days creatively. But I don't, I don't, I never wanted to be the guy like, oh my God, like this music today sucks. I'm not aware of all of the music. I am aware of that thing you're talking about where they can take the, you know, the important parts of a song that a melody, whatever that succeeded before and redo it. I mean, I think there's some melodies that are timeless that Mm -hmm. will grab you, but it's, it's, presented in a whole new thing, right? Like, it's not the same song. To us, it's like, it's pretty much the same song, but it has changed sufficiently to where the 20-year-old or the 15-year-old does not need to be aware that this was a hit before. And also, our stuff was taken from beats from the 70s, right? right? Like, like there were 60s or 70s, and then you hear a song in the 90s, a a good R&B song, and you're like, oh, I love this. But that beat was also recycled. Remember we went down the rabbit hole on that with certain songs? Oh, yeah, for yeah. sure. For sure. sure. But I guess I feel like I should actually be more lost and uncomfortable with the music of today than I actually am. Because when I hear it, it sounds like a lot of the songs sound so familiar. And like, it's not I just took, you know, a hook or I took a beat and made a whole different thing of it. It's like too similar to the original to separate from what the original was. See, I think I think part of it is that as Gen Xers, and I'm speaking about me and Crystal now. <laughs> I'm a millennial. Thank you very much. She makes the cut. <laughs> You're not. We've discussed this. I'm an old millennial, Torrey. As a representative of be... Team Millennial, we are <laughs> drafting Crystal. <laughs> You're at the end of Gen X. But Gen X experienced our boomer parents looking down on our culture. And I think we said... I don't want to do that when I'm a parent. I will be embracing. I never. I don't want to be get off the get off my lawn person. And we mm-hmm. wanted to be embracing of the next generation. So, I, you know, we want to wrap our arms around the Zoomers and be like, you know, whatever you got, we love you. We accept you, right? We're not mm-hmm. going to do what our parents did. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're trying to do that. And I think in a lot of ways, we're succeeding at that. You know, I think a lot of us want to be our kids' friends more than our parents. A lot of our parents, there was a clear hierarchy. You know, I am not, I'm sure a lot of Gen Xers, are, I am not your friend, right? Like, and we are on different levels. And we took to parenting differently, right? And so I think we're trying to be more open and accepting of what the next generation wants. That doesn't mean that we understand everything that they want and they're talking about, but we want to be understanding. Yeah, I still can't. I'm not a Drake fan. I can't do it. I just I can't <laughs> I do, do it. You. I, I can't do it. You know, I I like a bunch of his songs. I get some of the sonic appeal and the the poppiness and the catchiness of his music and his voice. Where I get upset is when the millennials start saying, this is the greatest or one of the greatest Mm. rappers of all time. I'm like, he's not Mm. even a good rapper. Mm. Right? He's not not even good. So, and they'll point to sales numbers, which is very problematic. Because the yeah. rap community 
is is finite. It's only so big. I think I haven't looked at this in a while, but I think we could make an album double platinum, two million, maybe three million, maybe. But when you get to Drake numbers, six, seven, eight million, which he's done several times, there's a lot of suburban non-hip-hop fans who are yep. buying the records. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. There's a lot of people who have Drake and Taylor and Katie and aren't really listening to other rappers. That's fine. But when you point to sales as the reason why Drake is one of the greatest, I'm saying you're giving a vote on who's the greatest rapper to a lot of people who don't, don't care about hip hop. Right. That's not. That's not. Why would you? Why are you voting on this at all? You don't get to vote on this. This is what hip hop fans are voting on, and hip hop so fans are. So how would you? How would you do the metrics, Tori? And who of, would be of, on your list? Of my of my top rappers of all time, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I w- w- you asking who are the metrics? Both. Um, for the metrics, I think more about uh, areas of performance. So I think about flow first of all. I think about lyrics and diction. Um, what words are you using? What metaphors are you using? Um, what are you talking about? Are you making a point? Like, is there a point mm. to your music? Not mm. just, I'm just spitting, but like, are you saying something to where somebody else could not do that? I listened to an AI version of Biggie and Pac mm. doing uh, Jay-Z and Kanye's watch. Uh, 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 was it Otis? I think it was Otis. And it was like, well... Biggie might have done Jay-Z's verse, but there's no way that Pac would do Kanye's verse. Because we know Pac, what he talks about and what Kanye talks about, right? So there's there's a brand that you talk about in other areas as a brand expectation. Are you creating that? Um, there's some other, you know, the, the quality of your voice. Mm-hmm. Some people could just read the phone book and you'd be enthralled. Mm-hmm. And some people don't mm-hmm. have that. So they've got to say great things. Um, you know, that's a big part of it for me. Some people talk about influence, but that gets very subjective, I find. Um, you know, but I also think about how many times have you made, a, a, you know, a landmark song or album? But that, too, is complicated because in the 80s, they weren't really able or thinking about it as a career. And very few people made three, four great albums because it wasn't as careerist as it became in the 90s. So, Mm -hmm. you know, Jay-Z and Nas have made tons of albums. They made tons of great albums and tons of great singles. I don't want to dismiss Rakim because he's really just two albums because they weren't... And he had a relatively long career for the 80s, uh, for an 80s rapper. Um, But I think about Jay-Z and Nas, I think about Rakim um, because the voice is so incredible, the flow is so incredible, there's so many stylistic innovations. He's the one who's creating and popularizing internal rhymes um, that people had not been doing and polysyllabic rhymes when people have been doing monosyllabic rhymes, which becomes so incredible. Um, I think a lot about Andre 3000 and Kendrick Lamar um, as sort of a top five. I, I think Lil Wayne is incredible, and he's up there. 
Um, Biggie has one of the most incredible careers. You know, so uh, there's probably a couple more if I really started to think, but I mean, those are kind of the main guys that I think about a lot. I'll give you five I love. Nas, Tupac, Jadakiss, Lil Wayne, and I'm a big uh, Fabulous fan. That's in no particular order, by the way. I'm not saying it's like Nas and Jadakiss too. No, I'm just giving five off the top of my head that I really, really yeah. love. I'm also a big fan of Southern rap. Yeah. And I know that people don't tend to put the Southern rappers in well, the top five. you had Andre 3000. He's Georgia, well, right? Yeah, I, I named two of them in, in Andre and Lil Wayne. There was a time when it was acceptable, socially acceptable, to look down on Southern hip-hop. And then there was a time when, like, that's ridiculous because we have T.I. The Beats, we man. Have the Beats Lil are Wayne, um, when Andre 3000 came out, when Goody Mob came out, it was like, you know, there's a lot of incredible... And Rick Ross is not necessarily... Like, what he's... He's an interesting example because he doesn't really flow that well, which is my number one criteria. That is the number one thing for me in terms of rating you as an MC, your relationship to the beat. Can you become another drum line within the track um, and make that really an interesting musical part of the song? And quite often, the first time I listen to a song, I can't really follow all the lyrics, but if I can follow the... I can follow the flow, and if the flow is interesting, then I want to keep following you. Rick Ross is not great on flow, but he does he, he does say some interesting things, and he does have a great voice, and he is a great uh, beat picker, um, the sort of beats that he chooses. So he sort of is an interesting example of a great Southern rapper, even though he's missing some parts of the puzzle. Mm, um, except for another... Tupac is an interesting one because I feel like he's a lot of people want to argue greatest of all time one of the greatest of all time I feel like he's really not very I don't think he's a great rapper really at all Um, the flow is not very good what he's talking about is quite often he's fairly one monosyllabic and he's fairly simplistic a lot of the time in what he's talking about. He has some deep songs, but a lot of time he's, I get around just as much as he is. Brenda's got a baby. Um, I always oh, felt that way about Biggie. I was never a big Biggie fan. And I know that makes me a traitor to the East coast in a sense, even though I'm from New York, but for whatever yeah. reason, he never, he never caught my ear. Pac, I agree. He's got like a unique style. It's very punchy, but I feel like it worked. I think, I mean, I feel like if we could erase from people's memory all the stuff Pac did outside of the studio, Mm. shooting a cop, beating up the Hughes brothers, you know, all the shit, the Black Panther, all, it was a, it was like a story a week about Pac for a, for a while of like. His old interviews are crazy and you can see them on YouTube, the stuff he would say. He, I think if we could erase that from people's minds and stop thinking about him as this black Jesus savior figure, they would stop talking about him as a top 10 MC. I think with big, especially with the second album, the, 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 the flow, the precision with the words and the diction, the way that he talks about, I mean, like he's one of the great storytellers in hip hop history, 
you know, with like cinematic detail to where you can see the situation and what's happening that he's describing. Um, it's something I didn't realize. There was a documentary about him where they talked about there was a an older jazz drummer who lived around his way, who he talked to several times about music. And they pointed out the jazz drummer-esque nature of the way he approached uh, rhythm sometimes. And I was like, oh my God. Like when <laughs> I saw that and they show it and I'm like, I had not put that together. Especially with the second album, Life After Death. I think he's, he's you know, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. Yeah. I think Jay-Z's overrated. I know that's blasphemy too. That is absolute blasphemy, Kyle. <laughs> yeah. I, Crystal, I can't even talk to your man right now. I Can don't, I? Listen, listen, I'll give you this. Here's my this? theory on Jay-Z. What are you talking about? First of all, like, let, I'm not even going to get into the politics because that's a layup for me in this argument. I feel like a black Republican money I got coming in. Massive, massive capitalist. Well, hold on. Like, wait, I'll put that aside. I'll put that hold aside. On. He's, hold on. He is not a black Republican, right? I mean, in that line, he says, I feel like a rich man. He is... He is absolutely progressive. He has been that lefty who has times been traitorous to the movement, right? In terms of like, he basically said, we could stop listening to Colin Kaepernick now, right? Because uh, I got this and he had nothing, right? He was just basically telling us, stop listening to him, right? The NFL gave me a bunch. So the politics, but like, I, we, I don't count the politics. That's not. No, fair, 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 fair. I agree with you on that. But I'll just say this. The song Can I Get a, when that song is straight fire. So he came out on like the highest note imaginable. And then ever since then, every every time I hear a Jay-Z song, I'm like, eh. Every Jay-Z song? You don't like any Jay-Z song? I mean, I'll I'll keep him on the radio if you I hear really it. Like but like, too, I don't right? like his voice. His voice annoys the shit out of me. It's like, you don't sound good. It doesn't sound good to me. Listen, I'll give all my blasphemous opinions today if you really what want to. What is happening? It's fine. Ready for it's this? Fine. Number, fine. number one I, R&B artist all time, Chris Brown. <laughs> and we're going we're gonna to leave aside everything he did in his personal life. We're just going to say musically, number one all time. What are you talking about? <laughs> number one R&B artist? I mean, we can talk like Keith Sweat, go back to, like, I can give you different Prince from different eras. James Brown and Michael Jackson and George Clinton made, R and Janet Jackson made R&B. So that leads to a good question that I wanted to ask you about, which is, what's your view on separating the art from the artist? Because I'm sort of a fundamentalist on this question, and I'm big on the team of, like, you literally, like, I'll still listen to Michael Jackson, I'll still listen to Chris Brown. I've, I'm easily able to separate the art from the artist. I don't feel like that reflects bad on somebody morally or ethically. But there's some people who really disagree with that, and they say like, "No, if you're, you know, if you're sitting there listening to Michael Jackson, you're basically like co-signing pedophilia in a sense, or whatever." What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think you you've talked some about this with regard to Kanye. I mean, yeah. I mean, look, it's it's a complicated issue in which a lot of us are not are are forced to be hypocrites, right? Uh, Roxanne Gay has a great little bit about this in Bad Feminist where she trashes R. Kelly, you know, for obvious reasons. But then she's like, but there's but there's that rhythm goes to a lizard brain place in the mind where, you know, when the ignition remix beat comes on, she can't help dancing. And I'm like, I get you. I am there. 
That's fact. Fuck R. Kelly all day, but that ignition beat is so dope. I can't front. Why do you have thirty bangers? He had like thirty bangers. Yeah. R. Kelly. Yeah. And you could play any random R. Kelly song. I'm always like, oh, this is a good one. I, I can't. I I can't. Like I can, I can't separate it when people are doing like truly horrendous things. I can't hear Michael Jackson and forget the documentary, right? Especially when you realize that the entire life was constructed to mm-hmm. lure in children. Mm-hmm. So they're not two separate things. It's right. not like I was making music and then as a hobby, I was chasing boys. Like Neverland, the entire childlike nature of his persona was all to disarm people so that he could be alone with their kids so that he could, I mean, like, it's ridiculous. I, I, I don't understand people who can, you know, listen to Michael Jackson or go to that play or like, I'm like, that's, that's insane. I'm, I, I, you know, I loved the music and then I saw the thing and I was a documentary and I'm like, I, how, I can't, I can't, I can't forget but that. I, I gotta push back on that. You wanna, that. You wanna... Well, I, I was just gonna lay out what I, what my thoughts are, yeah, please, which is that you. I don't have like a moral judgment of a person who would still listen to Michael Jackson and like get something personally out of it and like feel a certain way about it, like the Ignition Remix example from Ro- Roxanne Gay. But I do think what you're speaking to, Torre, is that when you know the backstory of these songs, it can actually change the experience of the art itself. And, you know, I do feel that way somewhat about Kanye. You know, I think I feel that way somewhat about R. Kelly. I feel that way somewhat about Michael Jackson, where it's not that I think there's anything morally wrong with still enjoying the art if it speaks to you, if it does something to you. Because I do think once it's out of the artist's hands, like it's up to human beings how they experience it. But for me, the art itself can be altered by the knowledge of the context in which the songs were made. So um, let me push if, back if on that. If you've done something horrendous, I don't listen to Kanye at this point because of the anti-Semitism things. I don't listen to Michael Jackson because of the pedophilia. Um, I'm trying to think of a major, other major cutout. This can be taken to an extreme, though, if you think about it. Like... We're I wouldn't draw really see around. Woody Allen. I wouldn't see a Woody Allen movie at this point, and I was a big Woody Allen cinematic fan for a while. Um, but I, but but I would listen to Marvin Gaye. Yeah, and you know cool. he was dating a seventeen-year-old when he was thirty-four, right? Mm-hmm. I would listen to the Rolling Stones, right? They did the same thing. Um, you know, I would listen to James Brown. You know. Uh, so you know it, this 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 line of thinking. Let's call it cancel culture because I think this is what this is about. It's hard to escape becoming a hypocrite, right? Eventually, right? Otherwise, you have you know you're cutting out so many people. But I no I I I mean like I guess I'm further over than you, Crystal, because like no I. I'm looking at other people like Kyle who are like I still like Michael Jackson. I still wear Kanye shoes or whatever i'm like you are you are okaying what they but said see, and did but see that's where i have a problem though because that to me that just feels like a flat out straw man because if you talk to these people there's not a single person who will say yeah i support michael jackson doing pedoph- pedophilia they'll just be like yo i like the song thriller like i listen to it from time to time like that's the point so just to give a counter argument here 
I went to school with, and my buddy Corin, my best friend, we went to school with Ray Rice, the NFL player. He, of course, there was a you know massive outcry because he was caught on a video camera in an elevator in like some he hotel casino, that. That hitting his wife or something like that. Some yeah. terrible. It was a horrible, horrible, horrible. He horrible, horrible. the shit out of her in the elevator. He did. Yeah. It was terrible. It was terrible. But then a few weeks later, um, there was a story we saw in our like local news about how the school we all went to, Nourishell High School. They decided to basically take down all of his like accolades, the championships he won at Nourishell, his jersey, whatever, and basically sort of wiped the record clean as if he never existed and never went to Nourishell High School. And Corey and I were talking about it, and I think my issue with it is like that's just factually wrong. He still did those things, and I don't like this thing that we do where we essentialize people, where it's like you're either all good or you're all bad. No, Michael Michael Jackson was a phenomenal artist, but he was also a pedophile. The pedophilia is bad, but the music is good. Like, Chris Brown is a terrible person. All the things that he's done, you, we could just stop the conversation by saying Rihanna, but he's had, like, 17 other legal issues and violence problems or whatever. And I'll agree with every criticism anybody would make of that. But his songs are still good. And, like, I, I have to say, I don't even feel bad a little bit listening to it because I don't feel like I know who I am, I know what I'm thinking, and I know that I'm not signing on to those things. I just like the song. Yeah, I mean, I, I, find, that, I find that math uh, is not, for me, that math is not mathing. That you are, you, are a, you are okaying the terrible behavior in that, like, I can put that aside and just consume your music. Now... The problem with saying Chris Brown is the greatest R&B artist of all time. That's just fact. has nothing to do with whatever happened with Rihanna. <laughs> has nothing to do with Chris Brown. has everything to do with what he's done in the studio. And he's there's so just, consistent. He's so good. Not, I, don't think there's an, I don't think there's a real, I mean, Aretha Franklin makes R&B. Stevie Wonder makes R&B. I mean, like. Chris Brown not even top ten in his generation. Oh, like, what that's are you talking about? oh, you said not even in his generation? Oh my god, are you kidding? Oh, no. Come on, man. So no. who could beat him in his own generation? I mean, arguably Usher. You could make a good argument for Usher. But outside Usher, Usher who else in his generation is holding a candle to him? Well, oh my god, I can't with you. Okay, so now I have to say like I'm Miguel or somebody like that? Like who, who are we talking about here? Google. Well, I mean, let's see, let's see. I mean, Ma definitely. I mean, Maxwell's in his generation. You're gonna make Maxwell had like three songs, bro. Chris Brown had seven thousand. Maxwell, Maxwell had three gigantic albums. Oh, the glasses are coming out. It's Listen, serious. Chris Brown wakes up on a random Tuesday and shits out a banger. Like, I don't want Maxwell. Where's Maxwell right now? What's he doing? <laughs> Maxwell. Maxwell is so big. He takes ten years between albums. And D'Angelo. <laughs> D'Angelo also. You want to talk about a leg? D'Angelo had that one, of the one song where he was naked as fuck, where every woman was like, "Oh my god, look at his six pack." That's what D'Angelo's known for. It wasn't really the six pack; it was like the whatever the side yeah, things, the are. dick lines, the uh, the the pelvic <laughs> yeah, pelvic bones. I'm not, I'm not sure what, but no, D'Angelo is one of the great artists of all time. Uh, like, I mean, there's an incredible musician. Um, if I ask your average uh, R&B enjoyer, name three D'Angelo songs, I don't think they'd name them. I could, they could definitely well, name three Chris Brown songs. Well, well, I, I don't think that's a, that's a really good test, but I mean, like, uh, I mean, no, I think people would, I mean, like, 
D'Angelo between Untitled and Brown Sugar, um, you know, just destroyed the culture on multiple occasions. Um, I mean, I'm trying, I'm having trouble, but well, Chris Brown is, is he 90s or is he double O's? He's really in the double O's. He's more, yeah, he's definitely the 2000s. He's definitely the 2000s. Run It came out, I want to say in like 2000, what was it, six? No, that was, no, it had to be lower than that, 2000. And he was like, what, 16? He was 16, and he's my age. So we'll do the math on that. 88, 98, 99, 2000. Well, I mean, okay, so, so 2000s, I mean, come on, bro. Neo is in the 2000s. Neo's great. I love Neo. I give him, uh, he's like a top 10, certainly Beyonce for a generation. Makes Oscar, R&B. I think, is close to Chris Brown, but he just. Beyonce it, makes R&B? Do, do I have to give my other uh, controversial opinion? Don't bring up Beyonce. Oh, I'm not a fan. I'm just not a fan, man. Crystal Give me Rihanna all day right. over Beyonce. Immediately, what is happening right now? <laughs> Rihanna all day over Beyonce. I know this is probably my most controversial. <laughs> this is the hottest of takes. Because you know I'm, what? It's I'm, also I'm like getting, I'm sweating. Everybody, but like, just, here's the thing. <laughs> musically, everybody sucks her off 24 seven, and it's like, what, it's what, not. Like, they're overstating it. Wow. wow. Everybody's like, oh my god, yes, Queen, do your one show every three years. How often do you think these people should perform? I mean, like I said, Chris Brown on a random Tuesday shits out a new banger. So, like, just keep pumping out music. I mean, but this is not a quantity game. It takes... It I agree. Takes, it's quality it and quantity. Beyonce, it probably takes Beyonce a year to make an album, probably, right? And it probably And she could go on tour for a year, right? Because, like, you wouldn't necessarily know. Like, you hear a lot of... A, you hear a lot about an artist when they're touring in America, right? When they go to tour in Europe and Asia, the press calms down because they're doing press over there. So a lot of times people will be like, what happened to so-and-so? They're on their European tour. That's what happened to them. I remember somebody once, because I happened to be friends with a friend of uh, the ex-wife of one of the Chili Peppers. And uh, it was like, we hadn't heard from them in a minute. Where are they? Dude, they just did 20 dates in South America and each of them walked away with millions of dollars. Each of them. And there's like five of them. You know, so, but that, that's just a general notion. Okay, but it, the, the quantity does not prove anything, right? Well, it, it, I John agree, Legend, but it's a mix of John quantity Legend and quality. Is, you need both. John Legend is also in the 90, in the double O's. Mariah Carey Chris Brown blows also, him out of the water. Mariah Carey's Mariah great. Carey's, Mariah Carey's he great. Loves Mariah Carey. but I, I love Mariah Carey, but I almost want to make Okay, so 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 uh, so so uh, I'm going to stop you because uh, no, Chris Brown is not better than John Legend. Yes, he is. They're, 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 yeah, they're, absolutely uh, is. Usher as we've already mentioned, Alicia Keys. Usher's a close number 2 to Chris, for sure. Okay, that's ridiculous. Listen, it's <laughs> just ridiculous. It doesn't Hold even on. make any sense. I am the eldest boy. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Listen, whenever I say whenever I say that doesn't make any sense, now I want to immediately go. I am the eldest boy. But even though it I'm not, I'm boy. not. Let me just take oh, explain. Was in the double O's. I'm not an album listener. Like I don't listen to full album. You don't listen to full albums either, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm like a casual music enjoyer. And with Chris, literally since he came out until this day. He's released so many albums. Every single album, I could just listen to the whole thing and never hit skip. That's as how good his I, songs are. As, as much as it pains me to say this, Justin Timberlake made R&B. 
Justin Timberlake is good, but he's not better than Chris. Chris doesn't have anything that touches sexy back. I, okay. Don't make me read all my Chris Brown songs on, on my... Uh, Amy Winehouse made R&B? She, okay, she was good. so... Like, she had good. one good. album, right? Don't say she had one what? album? I can't even I name more no than one of, one of her songs. Like, try to make me go to rehab. That's all I know of hers. Well, I mean, look, your lack of study of the genre is not my problem. <laughs> like, all these people Listen, are way better than Chris Brown. Um, totally disagree. All I know is what's in my iPhone library. And it's like, uh, I have so many Chris Brown songs and very few other people. Like... I just like R&B in general, so I have a lot of like genuine songs in there. There's certain artists who I'm more attracted to, and I admit my list is subjective, but you're not allowed to say it now about Chris because it's blasphemy because of how terrible he is in his personal life. But musically, there's a reason why he's got a community that stands super hard because his music is still phenomenal. Can we agree to disagree on this one, boys? I'm willing to do that, but I don't think he's going <laughs> to let this go. <laughs> Go ahead if you want to ask. Yeah, well, I wanted more. to ask. Okay, so I have two more questions I want to ask you, Torre. Um, okay. On a, so another hot topic, I'm probably going to take the kids to see Little Mermaid. Obviously, it became very controversial because people were in their feelings about the mermaid main character being a black woman. I know you went and saw. What do you think of it from an artistic well, perspective? Well, not, not only is the Little Mermaid black, but so is the Queen. <laughs> the wait, the, uh, Ursula or who? No, Ursula's the sea Ooh, witch. The evil right. The, the prince the who uh, the Little Mermaid must kiss. Yeah. His mother is black because oh, the prince okay. was adopted long ago. Oh, okay. So that's a whole. That's gonna. If 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 it bothers you that the Little Mermaid is black, wait till you see the queen. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, I didn't love the Little Mermaid. Um, didn't love that the whole thing of he's got to kiss this silent pretty girl totally for immediately first i was like how is she going to consent if she can't talk <laughs> i said that about sleeping beauty the other day yeah, remember oh 100 100 sleeping beauty that's assault but yeah. also it totally brought up the thing of like what men would love is a beautiful girl who doesn't talk okay? <laughs> She doesn't nag. She doesn't complain. She doesn't say she doesn't want to go to the restaurant I want to go to. She doesn't say no. She doesn't talk at all. This is great. She's beautiful and she's not bothering me. This is fantastic. And I'm like, and that's like a perverse male thing of like men, we don't really see women as full people. Like, you know, there's a certain value to them. So if they don't talk, that would be great, right? I could just hang with the boys and she doesn't talk. And, drink. and I'm like, Really? This is what we're doing? Like, like the an Andrew Tate's ideal woman. It's like, oh my <laughs> god! Oh, Andrew Tate would love her. So she's except that she's black, but he would love. She doesn't talk. She's great. So that kind of threw me off uh, on the whole thing. I mean, I don't know. It's it's okay. It was fine for the kids, I guess. My daughter was like ten out of ten, and you know, you know, my wife said something interesting too because you come in and there's. Uh, Zeus, I guess. What's the name? The King of the Sea? What's his name? Poseidon. 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 Thank you, Poseidon. Yeah. And his his seven, I believe it was seven gorgeous daughters, and they're mm -hmm. clearly this Benetton 
group of women. Here's the African one. Here's the Asian one. Here's the Mexican one. Here's the, right? They look complete. And it's like, great, great. But they're also like all super skinny and like curvy, like size mm-hmm. two or zero or whatever. It's only a certain type of diversity. It's only a certain kind of, my wife's like, where's the body positivity? Where's the, like, where's the fat one? If not the medium sized one. And, you know, I'm like, wow, like, I want, like, that's a level of diversity that you wonder, like, could we actually get to that as a society? Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's one, like, we have, we are kicking and screaming about racial and ethnic diversity. But then it was like, like, could you imagine a movie where the love interest is, you know, a woman who's 200 pounds? Like, could, could, could that happen? You know, and the man is, you know, like fit, but she's overweight. But he's still like, could could that happen? Could you see that happening? I think eventually, I think eventually that'll happen. I'm I'm thinking of that. What's that movie with um the two black lovers who are in the closet? Moonlight or something like that. Moonlight. Uh-huh. That was a great movie, and I remember mm-hmm. thinking at the time, like, oh, this is like sort of like edgy in a sense because it was like a new. It's 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 almost sort of like Brokeback Mountain too. Is yeah. that now it's it's two black actors and it was a phenomenal was movie. And I think totally. eventually they'll find a way to do what you're talking about in a in a way like that that sort of does it in a non pushy kind of way where it doesn't feel like you're just saying we're doing this just to do it where it fits into the story well, you know what I mean? But those guys in Moonlight, they were all physically beautiful, right? In the oh, no, 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 you're right. I'm just saying that they we got to the point where it's like diverse plus gay. And then at some yeah. point it'll be like they'll have a trans lead, you know, the actor, or actress, or whatever playing the role. And then there'll be an overweight one at some point. Like it'll happen. It just need you need the right story and the right storyteller. And then I definitely I mean, think they'll greenlight it. I wonder if it would. I, I don't. I wonder if it would have looked how it would look to the audience of like skinny Asian, skinny African, skinny Mexican, and then this one's bigger. And would the audience register they're all the same? Or would we have that, you know, like that, like you don't even say anything, but everyone goes, mm. you know what I mean? Of course. I mean, there were a thousand right wing YouTubers going after the Little Mermaid for having a black mermaid. Yeah. You know, like yeah. every little thing is going to lead to that. Fact. I mean, everything yeah. that, look at everything that happened with Bud Light, just for putting a, having like a trans person basically advertise it for them. It, there was this colossal backlash from the right. And this stuff, it always comes in waves. It dies down, and then they'll find the next target, which is literally target in this yeah, case. At the moment. Yeah. yeah. But they'll just keep, you know, they keep picking their targets. But it's it's not going to stop because they're, for now, for these corporations, the mo- there is more money on the side of diversity because that ship has sailed now. Everybody in casual society, polite society, normie society acknowledges, like, yeah, it's yeah. a good thing. And so it, they're never going to, it doesn't matter how loud they get, I think they know it's still what, 10% of the population is that loud minority screaming, we don't want this. Yeah, if, if it's even that. Yeah. If it's even that. Um, my last question for you, Torre, is I know you're working on um, another series uh, with music in the 70s. Just wanted to, you know, ask you, give us a little bit of the highlights on that and timeline for that project. Um, hopefully in the next few months. It's, it's getting there. I think it's about 75% done. Um, just wanted to apply the same lens to some of the great songs of the 70s 
there's an episode that I'm working on about Afrofuturism, which is a whole whole band of art that portrays black people in the future and generally in a free in a context of being free. So we are sort of imagining being more powerful, more free in the future. So it's super, uh, when you see it, like Black Panther is the most popular example of it um, in popular culture. Um, but there's several examples of it. And there's a Parliament Funkadelic song that I can dive into as representative of a notion of like, we should go, we are leaving for another, because Parliament Funkadelic would have a spaceship called the Mothership land on the stage during the show. Oh my God. And this, and this was understood as we are really from somewhere else and we mm-hmm. are now returning to that place to be free, right? And the Mothership, the Motherland, uh, you know, like all that stuff. And, and it's built on... That song is built on elements of an old gospel song, um, uh, you know, coming forward to carry me home. So like we're, which that song was more like either we're going to Canada or we're going to heaven, but we're going, leaving here to be free. And the, the P-Funk song plays on those same notes, right? We're leaving this planet and we're going to where we can be free. Um, Hold on, Antari, I just need to see who's at the door. Yeah, sure. still there? I, don't know. I thought it was just a package or something. I'm looking forward to your series on Chris Brown. <laughs> <laughs> where are you guys? Where are you guys right now? We are in King George at our at our home in Virginia. Okay, great. Yeah, are they're they're getting their studio redone? Crystal and yeah. Sagar are. Okay. Yeah, so that's why we're we're not in the studio at the moment. Okay. That's fine. Is it just a package, babe? Was it somebody for? I have no idea. Anyway. You want to go look or no? No, it's okay. There's no car there either. No car. No nothing. It was a ghost. It was a ghost <laughs> that rang our doorbell. <coughs> All right. Oof. I know it's not good. Hey, get that looked at. God. <laughs> Yeah. Logs coming out next. Um, what else? Um, we were talking about the 70s. Um, there's also, there's a song that, that Parliament Funkadelic does that speaks to um, DC, Chocolate City, that I love. And that episode talks about the life of cities and how we came to live in these cities to, you know, the great migration, Mm -hmm. um, but also devolves into that Marion, a lot of people who care deeply about DC think Marion Barry was the greatest mayor they ever had, which is an interesting part of the conversation we were having about separating the art from the artist. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people outside of DC just think of him as the mayor who got, who got caught doing crack. Um, but people, like political science people who study D.C. understand, like, no, like he understood, one of his political opponents once said he understood politics better high and drunk than I did sober. 
A lot of Listen. people loved him. In the and you're going to get a lot done if you're high like on crack. Real, he was a real sort of like populist champion. You're going to get a lot done if you're high on crack. It's like He Adderall. got a lot done. He took care of the city. He got a lot of people jobs. That's why they reelected him after he got caught doing crack because he was a great mayor who understood how to work the system and make it produce for people. Congrats on the series. I think it's fantastic. I told you before, I'm very excited for you about the project because I think it melds together some of your greatest strengths and you can tell listening to you, like the passion and the insight um, in each episode. So super excited. Tell people where they can find you, follow you, and uh, especially listen to the podcast. Being Black the 80s is available wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm on Instagram and TikTok at Torre Show. I've been... Starting to post more and more on TikTok. It's fun. Oh, okay. And it's, it's, much, it's huge. It's gigantic. It's a much nicer community than uh, Twitter has become. Oh. Twitter is Twitter is a, is a cesspool. Yeah. And Crystal says Instagram is nice, too. Our kitty's here. Our kitty's here. Crystal says the... Instagram is nice, too, which I, I wouldn't know. What's your name? Salem. Nice. Classic black cat name. Nice. Here you go. My, my, I don't know where Marley is, but I don't. Maybe he's sleeping. Oh, he's sleeping. <laughs> he just licked my nose. All right, my friend. Love chatting Hello. with you. We'll talk Love again soon. Thank you so much, Tore. All right. So that was Tore. Um. So I'm. I was born 1988. I'm a kid of the 90s. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like most of my life, music was kind of. Non-political to the extent anything is non-political. I mean, everything's political. Right. It's, like, relatively non-political compared to, like, over-political tones. Yeah. Um, so I've noticed my bias is that if stuff is too political and they pour it on too heavy, yeah, I find it very cringe. You know, if you're going to have a political message in a song, I feel like it has to be subtle, has to be nuanced, has to be, like, maybe double meaning so you leave mm-hmm. it on people to figure out what's going on. Um I also, but I don't know if that's just me from my generation well, or if that's everybody sort of feels that way. Yeah. I mean, I also think, I don't think everybody feels that way because some of the like sort of overtly political girl boss type music is popular, you know, like Lizzo type of stuff or that Megan Trainor I can Trainor get down with some Lizzo whatever. though. I can get down with some Lizzo. Megan Trainor, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not happening. Like, no. Anyway, so I mean, I do think. Uh, you know, Beyonce has uh, tried to be political with some of her. But I think what perhaps you're reacting to is one of the points we were touching on, which is that any political music that would make it out today would be like corporate approved political music. And so it wouldn't have a radicalism or an edginess or a controversial element that might land more. Um, I also think, you know, we're living in a very cynical age where everybody thinks everything that is earnest is cringe. So even the, like back in the Obama era, Mm -hmm. you know, there was like, will I am doing, people were doing like these earnest, you know, hopeful Obama inspired type of music that, um, I mean, there were even some like Obama, remember there were like Obama songs that people listen to un- unironic. And now it's like, oh my God, that's so cringe. But at the time people didn't feel like it was cringe. Now it's just, I, there's such a level of 
um, cynicism based on the experiences that we've had as a nation between then and now of having any like hopefulness sort of like crushed out of us in the recession and the continuing of the wars and all of that stuff that I don't know I think that bleeds into the way that we read political messages as well where we don't take them as earnest or at face value it's like all right this is just like this is virtue signaling it's a ploy it's not real it's fake and therefore it's cringe i think there's a point in all of that but for me personally i think i always just come back to do i like do i like the beat do Mm -hmm. i like the rhythm do Mm -hmm. i like the sound yeah you could be singing about getting your asshole sucked but if you're freaking it and it's a good beat I'm like, yo, that's my song right there. So I think it always well, comes back to that. Like, can I just give you an example like, real yeah, quick? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, we were at our daughter's rehearsal yesterday. Yes. And one of the songs Dance that one rehearsal. of the kids were was dancing to. Yeah. Was that old Pokemon theme song? Yeah. They're singing about Pokemon. It's the cringiest thing you ever heard. But I was like, yo, this is my song. I remember this shit. <laughs> <laughs> Pokemon. <laughs> like I was, gotta catch them all. I'm like, yo, That's, let this rock. That is very much filtered through your childhood. Of course, nostalgia. no, absolutely, it's absolutely. Not actually a good song. <laughs> no, but I, 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 I fuck with the beat. The beat is nice. The beat is nice. You go back and listen to some of my, you know, my favorite <laughs> so rap funny. songs are like Big Timers, Cash Money Millionaires, yeah. and like the lyrics in the. Oh my god. Yeah. But, like, you listen to it and you're like, oh, yeah, they're nailing this. Yeah. You know? So absolutely. it's more about... So, in other words, I feel like it almost doesn't matter what the content is. For a casual music listener like myself... You don't respond as much to the lyrics and the content as the feel and the beat. I mean, I think I'm pro- probably the same way. Um, but that's... I'm a bias of my generation, too, is the point that I'm making. That perhaps for people... From the 60s or 70s where there was more potency and... and yeah, well, and also and we are casual... Correct. Pop music consumers, you know, like popular culture music consumers. And Torre is viewing it through right. a different lens mm-hmm. than we are. Yeah. You know, like he's like actually studied this and is like deep in the genre and talked to the things about the artistry of it. Like he's he's consuming it at a different level perhaps than we are. Um, so that may also impact the way that he like, you know, interprets these things. But yeah, it, it reminds me of the conversation we have about like political comedy, which is same thing. If, if it's funny, then it's great. Right. And if it's becomes more about the politics than about the comedy, then it's cringe. Yeah. And it's kind of the same thing for the music. Like if it was political music that had a great beat and like just, it was irresistibly catchy and whatever, then you wouldn't find it cringe. You wouldn't have yeah, a problem. The with Tupac it. songs. But it's There's when some Tupac songs like that. But when it's like, I'm going to make a female empowerment song and it becomes more about that right. than about making a good song, mm-hmm. that's when you're act like, eh, nah, missed. Yeah, exactly. But I, again, I do think we're uh, part of our own generation on that. If we were to talk to like Marianne Williamson, I'm sure she would have a take of like, no, for a song to be good or for music to be good, it has to mix in elements of like the rhythm and the beat or whatever with a good message that's delivered well. Whereas me, I'm like, I'm gonna go listen to Big Timers where they're rapping about my tank is still on E, but well, I'm hood is, rich. <laughs> this is like the difference between the original Woodstock and Woodstock 99. Right, right, right. But Woodstock 99, okay, but they crossed the line way over into just debauchery. Yes. Almost like debauchery for debauchery's sake. Right. I'm the, anti-debauchery, 
but I'm pro music that's all over the map in terms of the message as long as it sounds good. You're anti-debauchery? I didn't know that about you. I'm, I'm anti-debauchery. <laughs> I do. I think raping and pillaging is bad. <laughs> I, I will take a moral stand. But the <laughs> core of my point is, you know, the original Woodstock, there was like a political core and like a community that was coming in. The music was meaningful to them in that cultural context. They it was overtly bangers. political too. Mm-hmm. Whereas Woodstock 99, was like, all of the politics of it is stripped down. It was just like, let's bros. go rage and have yeah, a party. Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, those are our thoughts. All right, guys. That's the show. We love you all very much. Thank you, as always, for listening. You know the shameless plugs. Everybody uh, go on over to Substack. And if you pay 5 bucks a month, you get the video of every show, and you get it a day early. You also get our newsletters, etc. cetera. Uh, and much love to everybody who already supports us over on Substack. We love you guys, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>